Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, and anti-Semitism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In August 1941, 40-year-old Heinrich Himmler was in Minsk, Belarus, inspecting a Nazi concentration camp. Nearly all of the prisoners he watched through the barbed wire fence were either Jews or Soviet prisoners of war. During the inspection, Himmler wanted to see how his men eliminated their prisoners. He had 100 Jewish men and women lined up along a trench outside the camp for a demonstration. Himmler approached a young man in the line and asked him if his ancestors were Jewish. He answered yes, and Himmler responded, quote, Then there's nothing I can do for you. Moments later, Himmler watched as his SS officers executed the young man and the other 99 innocent victims. After Himmler witnessed the massacre, he felt nauseous. However, he wasn't disgusted by the murders. Rather, he was disgusted at the trauma the killing caused his men. To Himmler, He and the SS were the victims. After the massacre, he vowed to find a more efficient method for mass murder. He wanted to make executions easier on the SS soldiers shaken by the experience. In doing so, he implemented the Nazis' so-called final solution against European Jews, known today as the Holocaust. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're taking a look at Hitler's henchmen. These officers helped the Nazi leader build his regime and spread terror across Europe. Last week, we followed Heinrich Himmler's rise from a far-right university radical to a leading member of the Nazi party. We looked at how he transformed the disorderly SS unit into an elite paramilitary organization. We'll explore Himmler's murderous reign as one of the principal architects of the Holocaust, as well as the inept series of actions that led to his downfall. We'll return to Nazi Germany right after this. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. 
drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. After Germany's defeat in World War I, the nation's government and economy were in shambles. Inflation soared, unemployment was common, and citizens were frustrated by politicians who seemed incapable of fixing the country. This chaos allowed fascist rhetoric to take hold, and Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime rose out of the turmoil. By 1933, Hitler had taken power and used violence to hold on to it. Thousands of communists and social democrats were sent to concentration camps, many of whom were summarily executed. The Nazi officer who led this wave of terror was 32-year-old Heinrich Himmler. His paramilitary organization, the Schutzstaffel, or SS, carried out Hitler's orders with utter savagery. Within a few short years, Himmler had transformed the SS from Hitler's bodyguards into the Nazi party's most elite soldiers. He also seized Germany's various state police forces and unified them under the SS. In June 1934, Himmler solidified his position with a purge known as the Night of the Long Knives. The SS killed current or former party members who posed any perceived threat to their power. In particular, Himmler took down the rival Nazi paramilitary group, the SA. With the purge complete, there was no other party organization who stood in Himmler's way to control all German police. The SS were now Nazi Germany's eyes, ears, and muscle. However, this broad police power made the German military nervous. Many of Germany's military leaders were sympathetic to the Nazi cause, but they were concerned about the level of violence perpetrated by the party. They feared that the SS could ignite a serious conflict that would put innocent Germans in jeopardy. This all led the military to question why they needed a paramilitary at all. To justify the power of the SS, Himmler and his deputy, Reinhard Heydrich, claimed that only they could defeat Germany's greatest domestic enemy, the Jewish people. Instead of communists and social democrats, Himmler portrayed Jews as the number one threat to Nazism. This totally false assertion was a facet of the replacement theory that had consumed Himmler since his university days. Now, he publicly advocated for the forced imprisonment of Jews to end their encroachment on German soil. Within a year, he and Heydrich convinced Hitler to pass stricter laws against the Jewish people. These were called the Nuremberg Laws, and they weren't the first anti-Jewish actions Hitler decreed once in power. In 1933, he declared that all non-Aryans, namely Jews, were no longer allowed to hold various professional jobs. Now, two years later, Jews were no longer recognized as German citizens, and interracial marriage between Germans and Jews was outlawed. 
The Nuremberg Laws also served to normalize the persecution and abuse of Germany's Jewish citizens. Jewish businesses faced increased boycotts or outright appropriation by Germans. Throughout Munich and Berlin, Nazi thugs openly assaulted Jewish people in the streets. The sudden wave of persecution seemed to temper the tensions between the SS and the military. In essence, a line had been drawn. While the military handled Hitler's foreign threats, SS violence supposedly protected Germany from within. As the discrimination against Jews reached a fever pitch, Himmler spent most of his time doing the kind of bureaucratic work that had propelled him to the top. Now that he had organized the police apparatus to Hitler's liking, he focused on constructing more concentration camps, and not just for Jews or communists. In the mid-1930s, the Nazis broadened the definition of a criminal. Beyond actual crimes, the Nazis outlawed homosexuality, sex work, and unemployment. By the end of 1937, roughly 500,000 alleged criminals had been convicted. As such, Himmler needed space to lock them up, so he kept building camps. These efforts were a major part of the Nazi quest for pan-Germanism, or the unification of all Germanic peoples under the Third Reich. By weeding out so-called undesirables, the Nazis sought to establish a pure, dominant, and unified Germanic race. But the Nazis didn't intend for this race to remain solely within Germany's current borders. For his Aryan utopia to succeed, Hitler needed more living space, or Lebensraum, and that required expanding into more territory. On March 12, 1938, Hitler annexed Austria with virtually no resistance. This action was known as the Anschluss. For years, many Austrians desperately wanted unification with Germany, and the Anschluss gave it to them. As they did in Germany, the SS stormed through Austria and arrested political enemies. Nearly 80,000 Austrian Jews, communists, and liberals were arrested and sent to Himmler's camps in Germany. Six months after the Anschluss, Hitler partitioned a section of Czechoslovakia known as the Sudetenland. It was home to nearly three million Germans, and Hitler claimed he was simply taking back what already belonged to Germany. However, with the acquisition of new land, the Third Reich now had more alleged enemies living within its borders, especially Jews. As the Nazis seized more territory, Jewish persecution rose, culminating in a massacre known as a pogrom. In early November 1938, a Polish Jew named Herschel Grinspan assassinated a Nazi diplomat in Paris. Grinspan's family had recently been deported from Germany, and Grinspan sought revenge. But his plan backfired. On November 9th, Nazi leaders moved against German Jews in response to the assassination. That evening, anti-Jewish demonstrations broke out across Germany and other occupied territory. Much of the violence was encouraged or aided by members of the SS. Thousands of Jewish homes and businesses were destroyed, and Jewish men, women, and children were attacked. By the end of the night, 
30,000 Jewish men were arrested and shipped off to Himmler's camps. This pogrom became known as Kristallnacht. Now under Himmler's charge, these prisoners were tortured and put to work with forced labor. For the most part, this labor consisted of enlarging the camps or quarrying stone for Himmler's prized headquarters called Wevelsburg Castle. However, the principal Nazi goal for the forced labor wasn't a castle or a camp. Rather, Jewish prisoners were used to aid Hitler's takeover of Europe. In 1939, Hitler decided to continue expanding Germany's living space further east. The annexations of Austria and the Sudetenland were only the beginning. Now he set his sights on Poland. However, seizing Poland wasn't going to be as easy as Austria. Poland had an alliance with Britain and France, and they promised to support Poland against Nazi aggression. Thus, Hitler needed a pretext for an invasion, so Himmler and his subordinates created one. They even called it Operation Himmler. Throughout the summer of 1939, Hitler made several speeches claiming that Polish officials had advocated violence against German citizens. Of course, these statements were completely false. Then, on August 31, 1939, SS troops dressed in Polish military uniforms conducted a series of phony raids on various German civil and government buildings in Poland. They randomly fired shots in the air or vandalized the structures, terrifying the local German people. Of course, since Hitler claimed the Poles were violent toward Germans, the Nazis needed bodies as proof. So they hauled in dead prisoners from concentration camps and left them behind. Hitler used Himmler's false flag operations as justification to invade Poland on September 1st, 1939. Two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. World War II had begun. For Himmler, World War II was a catalyst for his vision of an Aryan paradise. Because he believed that Germans were genetically superior, he believed the military would easily conquer Europe. Thus, Himmler didn't see his war as being fought on the front lines. Instead, he turned his attention to an insidious operation at home. In October 1939, Hitler ordered Himmler to carry out the forced executions of Germans of all ages suffering from severe mental and physical disabilities. Himmler was to murder anyone who didn't fit his criteria of pure Aryan. He hired as many willing doctors and nurses as he could to euthanize these unsuspecting victims using toxic gas. By the end of the war, 60,000 disabled Germans had been murdered. While Himmler organized the Nazis' first genocide, the German military steamrolled through Europe. Throughout 1939 and 1940, German troops swept through Poland, Denmark, Belgium, Norway, and France. In most countries, Jews were shipped off to Himmler's concentration camps. But Poland was a little different. The Nazi plan was to break up the country into designated territories for resettlement. Jews were to be crammed into small ghettos while German citizens took over former Jewish homes. 
However, the logistics for transporting and housing nearly 400,000 Polish Jews proved to be impossible as the war raged on. So Himmler and his deputy Heydrich looked for alternative places to send them. They turned their eyes further east, and as it just so happened, so did Hitler. On June 22, 1941, the Nazis launched Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Himmler knew that Barbarossa would result in even more prisoners. Since he couldn't hold all of them, Himmler pivoted to a new goal. He developed a plan to eliminate them, and he called it the Final Solution. Coming up, Himmler's initiative morphs into genocide. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults. Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. Now back to the story. In 1941, the Nazis had successfully taken over most of Europe. Meanwhile, 40-year-old Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, was tasked with imprisoning Germany's enemies in concentration camps. However, by the summer, Himmler realized that he had a logistical problem. There simply wasn't enough infrastructure to handle the millions of prisoners classified as enemies under the Nazis' criteria, especially the Jews. This problem was exacerbated by the June invasion of the Soviet Union, which resulted in even more prisoners. After the invasion, Himmler focused on a new plan for eliminating prisoners. At his headquarters at Wevelsberg Castle, he told his senior officers that their goal was to, quote, decimate the Slav population by 30 million. While Himmler's SS troops never had an issue with murdering civilians, during the Soviet invasion, their depravity reached new lows. In addition to rounding up hundreds of thousands of prisoners, Nazi death squads known as Einsatzgruppen murdered tens of thousands of innocent Soviet citizens. These massacres happened all over Eastern Europe. In many cases, the SS forced their victims to dig enormous ditches before killing and burying them inside the mass grave they had just dug. Himmler actually witnessed one of the massacres take place near a concentration camp outside of Minsk, Belarus. 
The experience had a profound effect on him. Not only did blood get all over his uniform, but it was allegedly the first time he had seen a dead body. Himmler noticed he wasn't the only one shaken by the incident. He observed that his SS executioners had similar reactions. However, this wasn't out of empathy for the victims. Every killing was done personally by an SS trooper, and Himmler believed it was exhausting his men. So he devised a less direct method of murder. After using toxic gas to euthanize Germany's disabled population, Himmler decided to use the same method against Jews, Soviets, Slavs, Roma, and any other so-called enemies. Himmler believed it would be more efficient and more humane for his executioners. In fall 1941, Himmler ordered his subordinates to begin constructing gas chambers at several concentration camps, most notably at Auschwitz in Poland. Himmler chose Auschwitz as his primary center of mass extermination for several reasons. First, it wasn't on German soil. In his view, this meant the corpses wouldn't contaminate supposedly sacred Aryan ground. Second, Auschwitz was located in a rural area on the banks of the Soa River. Therefore, it blended in with the surroundings and made escape virtually impossible, so he believed there would be little evidence of the mass murders. Construction of the original gas chambers finished in early September 1941. Himmler used 600 Soviet prisoners of war and approximately 200 Polish citizens as test subjects to see which gas was the most efficient at killing. He ultimately settled on Zyklon B, a hydrogen cyanide-based chemical. When Himmler built the gas chambers, they were wholly under the auspices of the SS. Official Nazi policy didn't mandate mass executions. But by the end of 1941, the status of the war made the Nazi high command reconsider their official strategy. That year, the Soviet Red Army managed to stop the German war machine from reaching Moscow. Then the United States entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Hitler's blitzkrieg had stalled and a new enemy had emerged. With these new challenges, the Nazi leadership decided that the time had come to change state policy toward the Jewish population. On January 20th, 1942, 15 of the highest-ranking SS officers gathered in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee. Led by Himmler's deputy, Reinhard Heydrich, these 15 men ironed out the details of what became known as the Final Solution. From this point forward, under the guise of forced labor and resettlement, the genocide of European Jews became the primary focus for the SS. The Nazis estimated that this would result in the deaths of 11 million people. After the Wannsee Conference, Himmler ordered the construction of more camps and expanded those dedicated to extermination. Across Nazi territory, Jews, Soviets, and Roma were forced onto trains and sent to camps like Auschwitz. Auschwitz was by far the largest and deadliest of Himmler's extermination centers. 
However, Himmler and his men generally conducted each murderous operation in the same barbaric fashion. Upon arrival at the camps, prisoners were marched to wooden barracks. Those too weak to walk were carried by fellow prisoners. Once inside, camp guards forced the prisoners to undress. To encourage compliance and speed, the guards cruelly lied to the prisoners, saying they were preparing for disinfection baths. Once undressed, the prisoners were taken to a chamber and locked inside. A few moments later, Zyklon B filled the room and killed all of the trapped prisoners. When the killing session was over, a select group of other prisoners removed the bodies and took them to crematoriums. In an especially insidious move by the SS, the majority of these crematory workers were also Jewish. Himmler believed that the cruelty perpetrated within the camps was necessary. In his mind, it was revenge for alleged Jewish encroachment on German lands. As such, he wanted the most fervent SS men participating in these atrocities. Sadly, Himmler's men weren't content with organized mass murder. They found novel ways to torture and degrade their prisoners. Arbitrary executions were frequent. Rape, floggings, and other corporal punishments became common. However, the most depraved torture involved so-called medical experiments. Himmler had already hired doctors willing to forcibly euthanize disabled Germans. Now, he demanded doctors use prisoners, including children, as test subjects for various experiments. Most of these were designed to see how much pain the human body could endure before death. Himmler subscribed to the same pseudoscientific principles behind the theory of Aryan racial superiority. He believed these horrific projects would become significant to the scientific and medical communities. These tests varied in their scope. For example, some prisoners were subjected to mustard gas in order to burn skin and determine how fast a burn spread. Meanwhile, under the guise of aviation safety, Himmler and the German Air Force used prisoners to test how high a person could parachute from an airplane. They also constructed low-pressure chambers in order to see how little oxygen a person needed to live. Himmler's doctors also forced prisoners to face frigid temperatures to see how long they could survive or if they could be revived after freezing to death. They also made hypothermic victims attempt sexual intercourse to see if it would accelerate the warming process. For many experiments, the goal seemed to be cruelty, not useful medical information. And as if these procedures weren't evil enough, Himmler's doctors conducted mass sterilizations. For Himmler, the torture disguised as scientific experimentation gave him something he'd craved since he was a student, legitimacy. He believed his pursuit of racist medical information put him on equal footing with the conspiracy theorists and pseudoscientists he studied in his youth. Himmler had long desired to be perceived as an intellectual. Now he was working in the same field that shaped his ideology. Himmler believed he was finally fulfilling his destiny. However, he was often physically miserable. 
Ever since he was young, Himmler suffered from various health problems. Around the time he implemented the system of mass extermination, those health issues seemed to get worse. In particular, Himmler suffered from anxiety, which caused stomach cramps and bouts of unconsciousness. His symptoms grew more severe as he oversaw the genocide of European Jews. According to historians Roger Manvel and Heinrich Frankel, this was because Himmler actually felt a sense of guilt and shame about what he was doing. Though he had long subscribed to Aryan superiority, it was as if his health deteriorated as a reflection of how horrific his actions were. But Himmler didn't seek a physician or psychiatrist to treat his pain. Instead, he enlisted the services of Felix Kersten, a physical therapist from Finland. Kersten was more than just Himmler's personal doctor. He transformed into his unofficial therapist. During their sessions, Kersten discovered how Himmler's unflinching loyalty to Hitler caused much of his stress. On one occasion, he asked Himmler if he would kill himself if Hitler gave the order. Himmler replied, Yes, certainly. For if the Fuhrer orders anything like that, he has his reasons. And it's not for me as an obedient soldier to question those reasons. Though Kersten alleviated some of Himmler's health problems, Himmler's anxiety never subsided. Apart from his oversight of the Holocaust, the ongoing war continued to be a source of concern for Himmler. And in the summer of 1942, the war took a daunting turn. As the Nazis approached the Soviet city of Stalingrad, Himmler's power and his future were about to be thrown into jeopardy. Coming up, Himmler bungles his opportunity on the battlefield. Now back to the story. By 1942, 41-year-old Heinrich Himmler was arguably the second most powerful man in Nazi Germany behind Adolf Hitler. As head of the SS, which now numbered around 800,000 men, Himmler implemented and oversaw the systematic genocide of Europe's Jewish population. As such, Himmler had little to do with the ongoing war against the Allies. However, thanks to the Soviet Red Army, that was about to change. On August 23, 1942, German troops attempted to capture the Russian city of Stalingrad. Initially, the Nazi Air Force bombed the city for almost two days. However, most of the entrenched Red Army survived the aerial bombardment. The fighting turned into a prolonged ground war among the city's ruins. Miraculously, the Soviets were able to cut off German supply routes while also sending in waves of reinforcements. As the Germans struggled to replenish their food, ammunition, and manpower, the control of the battlefield swung toward the Soviets. Finally, on February 2, 1943, after five months of brutal fighting, the German 6th Army surrendered. The Battle of Stalingrad was the deadliest battle of the entire war, with roughly two million casualties. More importantly, it turned the tide of the war against the Germans, both abroad and at home. While the German military now found itself fighting a defensive war, 
Heinrich Himmler faced a sudden wave of agitation in Germany and Nazi-occupied territories. The Jewish ghetto in Warsaw was one of the largest the Nazis created. In the fall of 1940, roughly 400,000 Jews were forced to live in a walled-off area of just 1.3 square miles. By the middle of 1942, the majority of the ghetto was deported to a nearby extermination camp. At the start of 1943, roughly 60,000 inhabitants remained. A significant number of the remaining Jews illegally worked as tailors and fur dealers for their SS guards. When Himmler eventually discovered this, he was furious and ordered the ghetto's liquidation. Unbeknownst to him and the rest of the SS, Jewish residents managed to smuggle and stockpile guns and ammunition. So when SS officers came to destroy the ghetto in January, the Jews fought back. The SS were completely taken by surprise and unable to fully empty the ghetto. Instead, they only managed to deport around 5,000 Jews, far less than Himmler expected. The rest fled or went into hiding within the ghetto. For the next few months, the SS and Jewish resistance awaited another battle. It came on April 19th as SS officers attempted a final liquidation. The armed Jews put up an even greater defense, and just around 1,500 resistance fighters repelled multiple SS attacks, despite being ill-equipped compared to the Nazi soldiers. For over three weeks, the Jewish resistance thwarted the SS. Finally, Himmler's men decided to burn the ghetto to the ground. Once the smoke and ashes cleared, approximately 7,000 Jewish resistance fighters were dead, and another estimated 7,000 were transported to concentration camps. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was just one of the overt episodes of resistance Himmler now faced. Other forms were more subtle, like insubordination. For example, outside of Poland and the Soviet Union, Himmler's orders to carry out exterminations were largely ignored. In Denmark, Jews were actually encouraged to escape into Sweden. And once Mussolini was no longer in power, the Italian government simply refused to arrest or deport its Jewish citizens. With such blatant disregard for Himmler's demands, there was a sense that the Nazis' reign over Europe was waning. The Soviets were pushing the Germans back from the east, while the Allies took control of North Africa and Italy. It was only a matter of time before they launched an invasion to reclaim Western Europe. The Nazi leadership had another major concern. Hitler's behavior was increasingly erratic. Hitler suffered from insomnia, headaches, and progressive paralysis. Some believed it was from untreated syphilis, Parkinson's disease, or the manifestation of a mental breakdown. Fearing the worst, Himmler sought the counsel of his physical therapist, Felix Kersten. He even showed Kersten the Nazi leader's medical file. However, Kersten offered Himmler some shocking advice. He encouraged Himmler to overthrow Hitler. What Himmler didn't realize was that Kersten had always deplored Nazism. While treating Himmler, 
Kirsten believed he might be able to glean valuable intelligence to pass on to contacts in the Finnish embassy in Berlin. Kirsten played to Himmler's vanity and hoped he might convince him to surrender. Kirsten planted rumors that the Allies would put captured Nazis on trial for war crimes, though Himmler attempted to absolve himself. Hitler ordered the annihilation of the Jews. His orders are the supreme law in Germany. I've never acted on my own initiative. I've only carried out the Führer's orders, so neither I nor the SS can accept responsibility. Still, as Kirsten continued to whisper in Himmler's ear, the dismal gravity of the war sank in. Himmler desperately sought to salvage the Nazi crusade. Starting in 1944, Himmler began negotiating with individuals from European Jewish organizations for money and supplies. In one case, he offered to trade 700,000 Hungarian Jews for 10,000 trucks. And although this exchange never materialized, several thousand Jews were eventually released for a cash payment. But it was all for naught. By the summer of 1944, the beginning of the end was at hand. The Soviets liberated the first concentration camp, and American, British, and Canadian troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, France. In July 1944, realizing that the war effort was hopeless, a group of Nazi officers attempted to assassinate Hitler. But the plan failed, and around 5,000 Germans were executed. As a result, many positions within the military were now vacant. Thus, Hitler appointed Himmler as leader of the German Reserve Army. This promotion gave Himmler something he'd always wanted, direct command of an active military unit. In January 1945, Hitler tasked Himmler with halting the Soviet incursion into a region between Poland and Germany. As anyone could have anticipated, the inexperienced Himmler was a terrible combat leader. For one thing, he spent most of his time in a private train car receiving massages and taking naps. When he finally ordered his troops to attack, they got stuck in rain and mud. On top of all that, they wound up encircled in a minefield. Himmler's inept leadership led him to suffering a nervous breakdown. He refused to communicate with Hitler and was subsequently relieved of his command. His career as an active military officer lasted five days. Between his nervous breakdown and the Allies closing in on all sides, Himmler finally realized he would face serious consequences once the war ended. He knew his direct involvement in the Holocaust would surface, and it would likely lead to his execution. Himmler needed to save himself, and he believed the best way to do that was to betray Adolf Hitler. While the idea of the fanatical Himmler betraying Hitler might seem shocking, he had a history of turning on men he held in high regard. A decade earlier, he'd taken out his former mentor, Ernst Röhm, during the Night of the Long Knives. In truth, when an opportunity appeared or the walls closed in, Himmler was only loyal to himself. So he hatched a plan to undermine Hitler and save his own skin. 
On April 23, 1945, Himmler traveled to Sweden, where Felix Kersten had convinced him to meet with a Swedish diplomat named Folke Bernadotte. Himmler claimed to be the provisional leader of Germany and informed Bernadotte that Germany wished to surrender. For good measure, Himmler agreed to release nearly 20,000 concentration camp inmates. On April 28th, word of Himmler's betrayal was broadcast across British airwaves and soon found its way to Hitler. Enraged, Hitler immediately excommunicated Himmler from the Nazi party and demanded his arrest. But that arrest never came. While Hitler ranted about Himmler's betrayal from his Berlin bunker, the Soviets bore down on the city. Realizing he was never going to escape Berlin alive, Hitler died by suicide on April 30th, 1945. With Hitler dead and the Soviets entering Berlin, Himmler knew his only option was to escape. However, it was virtually impossible to get out of Germany. The Allies had occupied most of the country. For a few weeks, Himmler donned a disguise and managed to stay on the run. But on May 21st, Himmler and two aides were stopped at a Soviet checkpoint and detained. He was transferred to a British interrogation camp where Himmler finally admitted his identity. Once it was clear that they had the second highest ranking Nazi official in their possession, the British troops moved Himmler to a more secure army headquarters. On May 23rd, Himmler was examined by a doctor. When the doctor tried to do an oral exam, Himmler refused to open his mouth. Instead, he bit down on a cyanide pill hidden in his teeth. Fifteen minutes later, Heinrich Himmler was dead. By taking his own life, Himmler never faced justice for orchestrating one of the worst crimes against humanity in history. Not only that, over the final six months of his life, Himmler attempted to shift all the blame for the Holocaust onto his subordinates. The manner of his death seems to indicate that Himmler did realize the evil of his actions. Contrary to what he told Kersten, he likely knew he wasn't, quote, just following orders. It's almost as if deep down, Himmler knew his ideology was wrong, based on nothing more than fringe propaganda. If he truly believed his actions were right, he would have likely defended them. Instead, he made no attempt to justify himself. As the scope of the truth came out after the war, his actions were obviously indefensible. As head of the SS, Himmler approved the deaths of six million Jews, as well as millions of Soviets, Roma, Poles, and alleged criminals. All to create a fictitious Aryan paradise, predicated on conspiracy theories and nonsensical racist beliefs. Most terrifying of all, Himmler wasn't alone in his convictions. Perhaps this serves as a warning to current and future generations that fascist rhetoric can become real-life genocide. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll look into the life of Himmler's deputy, Reinhard Heydrich, 
and explore how fascism swept over a nation. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, edited by Joe Guerra and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. <laughs>